Axios Pro Rata, where we take just 10 minutes to get you smarter on the collision of tech, business, and politics. I'm Dan Primack. On today's show, CEO turnover hits a record high and the centrality of Peter Thiel at Facebook. But first, Mayor Mike's path to the nomination. So it's been about three weeks now since Mike Bloomberg first declared his candidacy for president, and he has not lacked for critics. Elizabeth Warren has accused him of trying to buy the presidency. Elections should not be for sale, not to billionaires. On Bloomberg TV, no less, based on the $35 million he's already spent on ads alone. Other progressives flinch at the very notion of a billionaire candidate, let alone a 77-year-old from New York who's got a golfing history with Donald Trump, a business history with Wall Street, and a record that includes stop and frisk policing for which he has since apologized. And many throughout the Democratic establishment wish Bloomberg was just putting all of his ad money towards Senate races rather than his own campaign. All of which leads us to the why. Why Bloomberg, a very, very smart man by most accounts, is doing this. Remember, he flirted seriously with running in 2016, but decided he could not win the Democratic nomination and felt a third party candidacy would have helped Trump by pulling votes from Hillary Clinton. One argument in Bloomberg's favor, though, comes from Bradley Tusk, a current venture capitalist who previously served as Bloomberg's campaign manager in New York. He argues in a Fast Company piece that Bloomberg first became mayor by running a very unconventional campaign and that he could do the same here, particularly by focusing all of his efforts on getting delegates during Super Tuesday positioning it as a national referendum, not a state-by-state -state race, and then working toward the first real brokered convention since 1952. The bottom line, Bloomberg has been underestimated before, so it is worth questioning conventional wisdom this time around. In 15 seconds, we'll go deeper with Bradley Tusk. But first, this. Axios Chief Technology Correspondent Ina Fried shares breaking news and analysis on the most consequential companies and players in tech, from the Valley to D.C. Subscribe to get smarter faster at signup.axios.com. And now, back to the Pro Rata Podcast. We're joined now by Bradley Tusk. So let's start here. You write in Fast Company that if you were a venture capitalist and you were viewing the Bloomberg campaign as a potential investment, you would indeed invest. What's the basic thesis when you're sitting around the table with your partners? What's the one or two lines for why you would take this bet? Massive upside, incredible founder with a great track record, huge stakes, worth the risk. Fair enough. So let's go back. When you think about Bloomberg's first race for mayor, you talk about how it was unconventional and he succeeded anyway. What do you mean by that? What do you think he did differently than other politicians in New York at the time? A few things. One is he was just very clear about saying what he believed and what he didn't believe. And rather than trying to appeal to specific constituencies and do the typical politician thing of trying to make everyone happy all the time, he presented himself as here's who I am. Here's what I've done. Here's what I believe. And then, you know, 9-11 hit day of the mayoral primary that year. And it was so difficult and so shocking that New Yorkers all of a sudden thought they wanted a mayor who was really competent, and really straightforward and not a politician. And that plus a really good campaign was enough to win. And I hate to ask it this way. Does he win without 9-11 having happened? No, he does not. So if he doesn't, assuming we don't hope for or expect some sort of massive tragedy like that or, or exigent event, does that example apply this time around the 2020 presidential race? Sure, because ultimately the, the point is whether it was you know running for mayor or the way he governed as mayor or creating Bloomberg LP. You know, he got fired from Solomon Brothers. They gave him a $10 million severance. And instead of taking his money and going to the beach, he turned it into a $60 billion empire. 
or the fights he's waged on public health or guns or coal globally. He's always done things unconventionally. And, you know, if you're a venture capitalist, that's why you're a VC, is because you're looking for the outlier of someone who does something, doing something very differently. You know, Mike is not a conventional politician, and his odds of winning this are not fantastic. But given what a weird year it is and given who he is, you should also shouldn't count him out. When we think back, I guess at this point, three years or four years ago, when he was considering running what became the 2016 election, didn't want to run as a Democrat, considered running as an independent, but didn't think there was a path to the presidency as an independent, a viable path to the presidency. Am I right in thinking when you look back at this now, that might have been wrong, that you think he could have won as an independent in the last time around? I think that. I still don't think that Mike thinks that. But, you know, that was my view. You know, I was sort of the the voice arguing that inside the Bloomberg world. But I think either way, what was very clear to Mike for 2020, any effort that potentially divided the anti-Trump candidate would only help Trump. And so in his mind, he's going to run as a Democrat. And if he's able to be the nominee, I think he has a really good chance to win the general election. And if not, he'll support whoever the nominee is. There's a lot of criticisms, obviously, as you know, of this campaign. And and one of them is that with the amount of money he's spending to help Democrats overall, they would be better served if this money was going towards Senate candidates. And, And you just look at what's happening this week with the impeachment. If Democrats controlled the Senate, there would be a much different outcome probably for Donald Trump. Why are those critics wrong that he should be spending the money on Senate races and maybe even keeping the House races as opposed to on himself? Look, we're lucky to be in a position where the two are not mutually exclusive. Mike just sent another $10 million over to the Democratic Campaign Committee in the House to help ensure that Nancy Pelosi remains a speaker. He's very supportive of Senator Schumer and will continue to do so going forward. But we're lucky to be in a position where Mike can spend money both on House candidates, Senate candidates, $100 million on voter registration this year, regardless of who the nominee is, and his own campaign as well. And in 2018, Mike bankrolled 24 Democratic House candidates. 21 of them won. That's why we, to the Democrats, took the majority back and why Nancy Pelosi is now Speaker. Mike is not a socialist. He is the exact opposite of that. He is a purebred capitalist. Should there be concerns from folks who are call them centrist Democrats, which I think Mike would kind of consider himself now, that his candidacy is going to take votes from Joe Biden, going to take votes from Pete Buttigieg, and therefore will elevate Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders in the final tally? Our concern is that in the final tally, Joe Biden hasn't been performing well enough to beat a very tough opponent, Donald Trump. Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders are probably going to have a very hard time winning a general election. And had Mike not got into the race, the likely outcome was a Trump re-election. And so the best way to prevent that is for people to give their votes to Mike and let him take on Trump in the general, where he's really positioned to win. I understand the general thesis that a Sanders or a Warren are, are too far left to win. But Trump certainly wasn't a centrist candidate, and he managed to win. He beat Hillary Clinton, who was a, a central a centrist liberal Democrat. Why, from your perspective, isn't it viable for somebody on the left to win, given that they're going up against Trump, who beat that conventional wisdom last time around? First of all, if Sanders or Warren is the nominee, then I very much hope that I'm wrong and they can win because defeating Trump is the most important thing that we can do. Do you think Mike would support them, publicly support them? Yes, I do. He would. But look, Trump, while didn't run a conventional campaign, was able to appeal to key voters in swing states that made the difference. Only about 100,000 votes that reflected the final outcome in Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Michigan, and Ohio. And that was enough to give Trump the victory. Those are not voters that seem particularly drawn to Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders. So unless you believe 
that turnout in big cities would be dramatically higher than 2020 than it was in 2016, and that African-American voters especially would really go out of their way to support Warren or Sanders. The argument for their candidacy is pretty limited, and at a time where what's at stake is four more years of Donald Trump, that's a really big risk to take. The campaign is only about three weeks old right now. Give me very quickly, in just a couple words, what's the best thing the campaign's done so far, and what's the biggest misstep it made so far? The best thing is the way we're treating Super Tuesday. While we're not competing in the first four states, because we got in too late to do that effectively, we're the only candidate on the air in all the Super Tuesday states. We're building organizations and operations in all of those states. And I think we're treating it in a way. I had breakfast with a guy from Tennessee this morning, and he said, this is the first Democrat I've seen on the air in Tennessee in the presidential campaign in 20 years. That's what we've done right. I mean, in terms of the missteps, I think we haven't yet figured out how to crack the code on getting into the debates. Obviously, Mike's already passed the threshold for polling, but DNC wants 200,000 donors, and Mike has one donor himself. So we've got to figure out how to get him in the debates. You keep using the term we. What is your role with the campaign, particularly since you are running a venture capital firm? You guys just, I guess, today announced a $70 million for a second fund. Are you part of the campaign officially? We did announce that. Announced both the close of Touch Venture Partners 2 and the current performance of Touch Venture Partners 1, where the IRR is currently 65% which does proves that our thesis around tech and politics is accurate. I am uh, advising the campaign in my spare time. I don't take any money for doing it, but I am helping with debate prep. I'm helping with media out there on TV on Mike's behalf and helping build the team. I look, I believe very deeply in Mike. I've worked for him a lot of times throughout my career. I know the world would be a much better place if he were president. And so whatever I can do to help, I'm going to do. Bradley Tusk, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Tim. My final two right after this. There is more news out there than ever before, but these days, it's harder than ever to find it and to know what to trust. Axios AM takes the effort out of getting smart by synthesizing the 10 stories that will drive the day and telling you why they matter. Subscribe at signup.axios.com. And now, back to the Pro Rata Podcast. Now it's time for my final two, and first up are CEOs who are leaving their jobs in record numbers, according to a new report by staffing firm Challenger, Gray, and Christmas. Specifically, 1,480 CEOs are out of a job just through November, and usually not on their own accord. Again, that's the most since Challenger, Gray began tracking the data in 2002, and includes 284 public company CEOs, which is the highest number since 2011. And also notably, most of the CEO replacements came from outside the company, which is the first time we've seen that in the past five years. Now, some of the turnover is due to sagging sales, like Under Armour's Kevin Plank, and some because of behavior, like WeWork's Adam Newman, plus the slew of inappropriate relationships with subordinates like McDonald's' CEO or ex-CEO Steve Easterbrook. But as we discussed yesterday, not everyone is out of work. Boeing's Dennis Mullenberg still has a job. And finally, the Wall Street Journal reports that Peter Thiel is the driving force behind Facebook's decision to not only allow political advertising, but also to allow political advertising without fact-checking it. For those who don't know, Thiel was one of Facebook's earliest investors and remains on its board of directors. He's also one of Silicon Valley's precious few supporters of President Trump, even reportedly joining a recent dinner between Trump and Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg at the White House. Why all of this matters is that it reflects a growing ideological battle within Facebook and one that the libertarian Teal seems to be winning. And we're done. Big thanks for listening. And to my producers, Tim Shovers and Naomi Shaven, have a great national answer the telephone like Buddy the Elf day. Buddy the Elf, what's your favorite color? And we'll be back tomorrow with another Pro Rata Podcast.